0: We come this evening to a consideration of the verses 5, 6, 7, and 8 in the 8th chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans, verses 5 to 8 in the 8th chapter of the epistle to the Romans. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Now here you will recall, who remember our original division of this great chapter, we come to a new section. The first four verses constituted a section in and of themselves, and now we have a new section which runs from this fifth verse uh, to the end of the thirteenth verse. Now let me remind you that the object of the entire chapter, and therefore the object of every subsidiary section, is rarely to prove the contention of verse one, namely, That there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. That's the fundamental proposition. He's out to show the absolute certainty and finality of the full and complete salvation of all who are in Christ Jesus. All, in other words, who are in the realm of the Spirit. All in whom the Holy Spirit of God dwells. Now that's his great proposition. Of course, there's a negative side to that, and the negative is this, that this salvation only applies to such people, not to anybody else at all. It is those who have been set free from the law of sin and death by the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. They are the only people to whom there is no condemnation and to whom, therefore, this certainty of final and complete salvation uh, applies. And, as we realize, he has been reminding us in verses 3 and 4 of the way in which we have been put into Christ Jesus, and thereby set free uh, from the law and all its demands and all that it does to us as we are unregenerate and in the flesh. Now then, having done that, he can proceed. And uh, in this uh, section, he's got one great object. And it is to prove this, that it is essential that we should be in Christ and in the realm of the Spirit before this can possibly happen to us. He's made the statement. He's made it in verses 1 and 2. Then, as I say, in 3 and 4, he shows us how we got into that position. But now he wants to establish the fact that it is only to such people that this full and final salvation is guaranteed and is absolutely certain. Very well, so we can put it like this, that what he's doing now from verse 5 to verse 13 is to prove the contention of verse 4 in particular, and especially the last bit of verse 4. He has told us that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. That's the thing. That's how we are delivered from condemnation, by the righteousness of the law being fulfilled in us. Yes, but he says, the righteousness of the law is only fulfilled in those who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Now then, he's going to show us why he said that. Why it is only those who... Who walk after the Spirit and not after the flesh are the people in whom the righteousness of the law uh, can be fulfilled. Very well, that's the theme. Now then, let us uh, proceed to a general analysis of this subsection, 5 to 13. And I suggest you divide it like this. Verses 5 to 8. Give us a picture of the contrast between the Christian and the non-Christian, with the especial object of showing that the righteousness of the law cannot possibly be fulfilled in the non-Christian, but only in the Christian. That's verses 5 to 8. Verses 9 to 11, there he applies all this to these Roman Christians in particular. He says, but you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of Christ, if the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. He is not a Christian at all. Well, he says, now, I'm applying all that. He says to you, as far as you are concerned, I know that you are in the Spirit and not in the flesh. So he applies it to them, and then shows them what their present position is in the light of that, And what their future glory is going to be because of that. And then in verses 12 and 13, he gives a practical exhortation to them in the light of all that, because that is true of them. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, we of whom all this is true, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh ye shall die, but if... Through the Spirit you do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. Now, in other words, 12 and 13 are but a practical exhortation and appeal in the light and on the basis of what he has already been saying. Now then, there is our uh, general analysis of this uh, interesting uh, subsection in this great 8th chapter. Now, two things, therefore, come out very clearly here. The first is this that in verses 1 to 4, as I've been careful to stress all along, the apostle is describing and writing about all Christians, not merely some Christians, all Christians. There is no indication whatsoever of uh, two classes of Christians. You are familiar with that teaching, who says that there are carnal Christians and spiritual Christians, and that here he's only talking about the spiritual Christians. This section we are going to consider now will confirm and prove to the hilt our contention that in verses 1 to 4 the Apostle has been talking about all Christians. Not some special Christians only. Not Christians who have had some second experience. All Christians. There is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. That's true of every Christian. Now this is quite basic because it determines, as we've seen our view of sanctification. Now, this section will prove that to us uh, quite clearly and beyond any doubt whatsoever. The second thing that it brings out, of course, is this, that a complete change in us is absolutely essential to salvation. If a man does not undergo a radical change, and if he doesn't enter, into the realm of the Spirit, the righteousness of the law can never be fulfilled in him. Christianity, as he has told us so often, involves a complete, a radical change in the nature of the human being. Now, those are the two big things, therefore, that we must keep our eyes on. Now, these two things come out very clearly in this first, Subsection of this section, in other words, verses 5, 6, 7, and 8, which we're going to look at this evening. Here it is quite clear that the apostle is comparing and contrasting not two types of Christians, but the non Christian with the Christian. That's what he means by they that are after the flesh and they that are after the spirit. They that are after the flesh is the non Christian. They that are after the Spirit is the Christian. Now, so many, you see, uh, with that wrong interpretation, say that they that are after the flesh are these so-called carnal Christians. But we shall see that the Apostle says something about them which makes it impossible for them to be Christians at all. It is just a sheer impossibility that they can be Christian in the light of what he's going to say to us. So, we will keep our eye on this in particular. Because the apostle's whole object is this, to show the utter and complete hopelessness of any man as he is by nature, being one to whom there is no condemnation, or in whom the righteousness of the law is going to be fulfilled. On the other hand, the moment a man is delivered from the condemnation and is changed and in this new realm, his hope is certain and nothing can ever rob him of it. Very well. That, then, I say, is is the thing which we are now going to look at. And it seems to me that the best way to do it is this. Instead of taking it verse by verse, and taking the contrast between the two, uh, verse by verse, it seemed to me to be better and probably more advantageous for us to take first what the Apostle tells us about the non christian Take everything he says about the non-Christian first. Then we shall be able to look at the Christian positively as a whole and go on with the apostle's argument. Very well. Let us take then first of all what he says here about the man who is not a Christian. His general description of him is that he is after the flesh. For they, he says, that are after the flesh. Now, what does he mean by this? Well, we remember, don't we, that the meaning of the word flesh here is fallen human nature. Human nature, if you like, as it is before the Spirit of God begins to do anything to it. It is man left to himself, man born, developing and growing in this life and in this world, Outside the activity of God upon him, that is the meaning of the flesh. So what he says about the uh, non-Christian is that he uh, is after the flesh. Now this word after is uh, an interesting one. Some would uh, translate it according to the flesh. But the really best translation here is to say under the flesh, under the The word the apostle uses carries this idea of being under something, under authority in particular. So that what he says about the non-Christian is that he is one who is habitually dominated by that nature with which he is born. That's the flesh. Now, chapter 5, you remember, has already told us uh, in a most amazing manner, and he's worked it out in detail in chapter 6 and and in chapter 7, Um, We are born like this, of course, because of our connection with Adam, because of Adam's sin. Everybody who is born subsequent to Adam is born after the flesh. We are born under the dominion, the power, the domination of this fallen human nature which we have. Now, he says that it is something that is continuous. They are after the flesh. They're born like that, and that is how they exist, that is how they go on living. That is a general description of them. Here is a man, then, whose life is governed and controlled and dominated by this fallen human nature which he has inherited. Now then, how does that show itself? What does that lead to? Well, the first thing he says is this. Such a man, he says, minds certain things. They that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. Now, this is a very interesting expression, isn't it? You noticed in that reading in the epistle to the Philippians that the apostle uses exactly the same expression uh, several times. He says, "'Let us therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded. And if in any other thing ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you.'" Verse 16, the same, "'Nevertheless, whereunto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing.'" And then he's got it negatively in verse 19. He's talking about these other people whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. What does this mean? Well, uh, of course, it's uh, a term with which we are quite familiar in an expression that is quite commonly used. If a man uh, is a bit of a busybody and uh, putting too many questions to you and interfering or showing too great an interest in your affairs, you say to him, mind your own business. Now, that's exactly what it does mean here, mind your own business. What does it mean, then? Well, it means this. It means the deliberate setting of your mind on certain objects. It's a deliberate action. That's why you command him. You say, now, look here. Don't you train your mind on me and on my affairs. Switch it onto your own affairs. Mind your own business. A deliberate action, a conscious action. It is something that is done then voluntarily and volitionally, Uh, by uh, such persons. Now, but let's be clear about this, that uh, the term includes not only thought and understanding, it includes affections also, the emotions, the desires, and the objects of pursuit. In other words, it's a very big word. It's a, a comprehensive word. You see, they mind-earthly things. Now, you see what a comprehensive term it is. It doesn't mean merely that they think about them. No, no, those are the things which they think of most of all. Those are the things of which they think habitually. That is the trend or the bent of their thinking. Those are the things that also please them most of all. Those are the things that give them greatest satisfaction. And therefore, those are the things after which they seek, most of all. Now, the term includes all that, and we mustn't limit it merely to intellectual interests or the intellectual aspect only. It's much wider than that. It takes in, in other words, the whole personality. Now, John, in his first epistle in chapter 2, in verses 15 to 17, has got the same idea, only that he uses a different term. He says... Love not the world, nor the things that are in the world. He might equally well have said, Mind not the world, nor the things of the world. It's precisely the same notion. Well, now then, here is the first thing. Here is a man who, because he is dominated by this fallen human nature in which he is and which he has, is a man who deliberately is interested in and concerned about a certain type of thing. And the type of thing is the things of the flesh. Now, once more, we've got to be careful that our understanding of this is sufficiently uh, comprehensive. What are the things of the flesh? They that are of the flesh... After the flesh, mind the things of the flesh. And the danger here, of course, is once more to limit the tone. And the danger is to limit it to sensual pleasures and to the sins that belong only to the body. Ah, oh, they say the flesh. And they think immediately of physical sins, sins uh, which belong only to the realm of our animal and physical being. Well, they are included, but it's very important that we should realize that the term, again, is very much more comprehensive than that. Now, let me give you some notion as to what is the real content of this expression, the things of the flesh. And in order to do that, we turn to the epistle to the Galatians, chapter 5, and begin to read in verse 19. Now, the works of the flesh are manifest which are these, adultery fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, yes, but also idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. So you see that the notion is indeed a very wide one. Or going back again to the first epistle of John, chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. Love not the world and other things that are in the world. What are they? Well, he says, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eye and the pride of life. You see, it's a big term, and it's 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 a widely inclusive one. What then does he mean? If you like, we can put it in one phrase. It means... Worldly-mindedness, that's the term which uh, John Bunyan was fond of, and it's the term that some people would use even here. Worldly-mindedness. What does it include then? Well, it includes things like this. It includes everything which is opposed to the mind and the life of the Holy Spirit. Or, if you like another way of putting it, you can put it like this. The things of the flesh mean everything in life without God. Everything in life from which God is excluded. It means, in other words, the life of this world only. Nothing to do with the spiritual, the visible, the seen, nothing at all about the unseen. Or, again, we can say it means the temporal only. This world of time, nothing to do with the eternal. Now then, it is life in this world only. It is life bounded by the body and uh, the various uh, qualities and attributes of the soul, but to the exclusion of the spiritual element. Now this is really most important for this reason. So many people think that this description which says that they that are after the flesh to mind the things of the flesh, that you are only looking at the open, obvious, profligate sinners on the streets and in the public houses of this city of London this evening. But it includes many other people. It includes some very highly intellectual people. It includes very moral people, some people whom the world describes as very noble To mind the things of the flesh includes political interests without God, social interests without God, cultural interests without God. Now, that's what the apostle is talking about. You see, take these people, these non-Christians. Some of them don't even believe in God. Well, they are the people who mind the things of the flesh. Yes, even in their highest pursuits in their philosophy, in their art, in their literature, in their music. It never gets beyond the flesh. God is outside it. He's excluded from it. There's nothing spiritual about it at all. All they can write very cleverly and in a very learned and interesting and entertaining manner about social conditions, how to ameliorate the conditions, how to improve them. They can write a great deal about forming some sort of utopia in life. It's all very interesting. They can produce masterpieces of art and of literature and of music, but there's no soul there, there's no God there, there's no spirit there. Well, it's all of the flesh. It belongs to the things of the flesh. Those are the things they mind. How important it is to realize this. That's where that list in Galatians 5 is such an important one. You see, he doesn't stop at... Drunkenness and adultery and murder and things like that. No, no, he goes to the realm of the inner man. And there you find that it is all inclusive. So that what we, what he's really telling us about this man who's not a Christian is that uh, doesn't matter where he comes in this gamut of possible interest and behavior and conduct, he is still only Dealing with the things of the flesh. Now, it is because the world doesn't understand this, that it's not interested in this gospel. You see, these good moral people of today, who are admired so much, that's exactly where they come. They're as much after the flesh and mind the things of the flesh as much as the man who spends his time drinking or giving rein to his passions and his lusts. It's purely a difference of degree. There is no essential difference at all. This good, cultured, moral man, well-spoken, etc., is as devoid of the Spirit as that most obvious and profligate sinner. He is outside the life of God quite as much as the other. He hates to be told this, of course. That is why he is the typical Pharisee. And that is why the Pharisees crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he convicts them of being after the flesh and minding only the things of the flesh. What a terrible state this is. And how alarming it is to realize that people can be in that without ever imagining it. They draw these distinctions and divisions, you see. But there is none, really. The only difference between that obvious so-called sinner and this highly good cultured moral man it's purely a difference of clothing well let me go a little bit further it perhaps is a difference in the skin the second man keeps his skin a little bit cleaner than the first man the first man's got a lot of mud and filth and mire about him the other one takes baths very frequently his skin looks very white yes but the difference is skin deep and doesn't go any further Inside, as men, in their relationship to God, there isn't the slightest difference. They all together mind the things of the flesh. All their thinking, all their interests, all their pursuits are entirely outside the realm of the spiritual and of God. That's what the apostle tells us about them. Then the next thing he tells us is in verse 6. He says, to be carnally minded is death. Now, this is a most unfortunate translation here in this authorized version. They really shouldn't have changed the expression. What it means is this. The mind of the flesh is death. To have the mind of the flesh is death. He has already said that they mind the things of the flesh. Now he is saying that the people who do mind the things of the flesh and have the sort of mind that does that are dead. To have the mind of the flesh is death. Here you see he is describing the quality of the state. Of mind that such people have who only mind the things of the flesh. Having this sort of mind, they turn it in the direction we've already been looking at. Now that, says the apostle, means that that it is nothing but sheer death. Our Lord perhaps gives us the best understanding of this in what he said to Peter. You remember in Matthew 16, we are told about that great scene at Caesarea Philippi when... uh, Peter made his great confession in reply to our Lord's question, Whom do ye say that I am? Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then a few minutes later, our Lord began to tell them about his death. And Peter said, No, far be it from thee, Lord. Peter couldn't take this. And our Lord rebuked him severely and said, Get thee behind me, Satan. For thou savourest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. Now, that word severist really means uh, to think, thou thinkest, not the things that be of God. Indeed, it is the exact word which is used here in this sixth verse that we are looking at. You know, the trouble with you, Peter, said our Lord to Peter, is this, that your whole mentality is wrong. Your whole way of thinking is wrong. You are not thinking the things of God, you're thinking the things of man. Peter, he says, what's the matter with you? You've just made your great confession. I told you then that flesh and blood had not revealed it unto you, but my Father which is in heaven, and now you're proving that I was right. Because when I go on to make a great spiritual statement to me, to you, you turn and you say, far be it from thee, Lord. Peter, the trouble with you is this, you're thinking Not after God, but after men. Your whole outlook, your whole mentality, your whole process of thinking is something which is sadly astray. Now that's the idea. The mind of the flesh is death. Let me illustrate it again from what the Apostle will tell us in the twelfth chapter of this epistle to the Romans, in uh, the second verse. Be not conformed, he says, to this world, But be ye transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. That's the thing that's essential. The mind has got to be renewed. And in the absence of a renewal of the mind, man is completely and entirely hopeless. You'll find the same thing in Ephesians 4, verses 17 and following. And you will find the same thing also in the first epistle to the Corinthians in verse 14. I suppose there is no chapter in the Bible that I personally quote quite so often as this. I think it is the chapter, perhaps of all chapters in the Bible, that the modern man needs to concentrate on. Listen to verse 14. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. Why not? Because they are foolishness to him. Neither can he know them. Why? Well, because they are spiritually deserved. He that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. And you remember the great contrast the apostle draws in that particular chapter. Now then, what it means is this. This mind of the flesh is death. What does he mean by that? Well, he means this. It is a state of spiritual death. And this is what the apostle says everywhere about the unbeliever, about the man who is not a Christian. Look at him at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2. you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Dead. He repeats it again. In verses 4 and 5, even while we were dead, hath quickened us together with Christ. That's the whole notion that he's got here. This man who is under the flesh and governed and controlled by his fallen human nature, he not only minds these things of the flesh, these worldly things out of which God is shut, He does it, he says, because he's dead, because he's spiritually dead. He's alive, he exists, yes, but uh, he's spiritually a dead man. What does he mean? Well, he means this, he's dead to God. He lives as if there were no God. And you see, some of your greatest moral men, some of your most cultured men in the world tonight are in that position. They're very able, very cultured, very interested. They never get drunk. They're never guilty of adultery. Ah, but you say, you can't say that a man like that minds the things of the flesh. I do. God is not in all his thoughts. He's completely dead to God. He's living as if there were no God. That's what is meant by death. Death is to be outside the life of God. Our Lord has settled that for us, hasn't he? In John's Gospel, chapter 17, verse 3, And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. And the man who hasn't got eternal life doesn't know God. He's outside the life of God. That means that he is dead. The spiritual realm doesn't exist for him. He scoffs at it. Spiritual realities mean nothing whatsoever to him. He's dead to them all. Ask him to read the New Testament, he says it's nonsense. Talk to him about spiritual things, but he doesn't know what you're talking about. I think I've told the story from this pulpit before on a Sunday, I don't remember doing so on Friday night, forgive me if I have. It's to me one of the most perfect illustrations of this point. It's a story about two great men. One was called William Wilberforce, and the other was called William Pitt the Younger. They'd been to school together. They were both brilliant men. They were both politicians, and they were very great friends. But William Wilberforce was converted and became a Christian. While William Pitt, like so many others, was a sort of formal Christian... He was not a Christian in any real sense of the term, certainly not as William Wilberforce was. And William Wilberforce was very concerned about his friend. He loved him as a man, and they had been so friendly, and Wilberforce was greatly concerned about the soul of his friend Pitt. And he was most anxious that Pitt should go with him to listen to a man who was then a preacher, a clergyman of the Church of England here in London, of the name of Richard Cecil. Cecil was a great evangelical preacher and Wilberforce delighted in his ministry. And uh, Wilberforce was always trying to persuade Pitt to go and listen to him with him. And at long last, Pitt said he could go. And Wilberforce was delighted and was praying. And they went to the service. Richard Cecil was at his best, at his most spiritual and elevated and exalted. And, And Wilberforce was enjoying himself, lifted up into the very heavens, couldn't imagine anything better, anything more enjoyable, anything more wonderful. And he was wondering what was happening to his friend William Pitt, the Prime Minister. Well, he wasn't left long in any state of uncertainty as to what had been happening before, because before they were even out of the building, Pitt turned to Wilberforce and said, You know Wilberforce? He said, I haven't the slightest idea what that man's been talking about. And he hadn't, of course. As a man can be tone deaf to music, all who are not Christians are tone deaf to the spiritual. The thing that was ravishing the mind and the heart of Wilberforce had conveyed absolutely nothing to Pitt. He was bored, he couldn't follow it, he couldn't understand it. Didn't know what it was about. But a man of great brilliance, a man of great culture, A man of great intellectual ability. Yes, but you see, he can't help it. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he, because they are spiritually discerned. You might as well have been, Richard Cecil might as well have been preaching to a dead man. The dead can't appreciate. Neither could William Pitt. He confessed it. It isn't what Wilberforce says about him. It's what he said about himself. And there are such people. They come into a place of worship. They listen to things that ravish the hearts of believers. They see nothing in it at all. It's utterly boring. And there are many people like that in the churches and always have been. So they want wish drives and dances and entertainments and socials and want to meet one another. They want the church to be doing this and that, you see. Why? Well, because they're not alive to these things. They're dead. Dead to God, dead to the Lord Jesus Christ dead to the realm of the spiritual and all spiritual realities, dead to their own soul and spirit, and their everlasting and eternal interests, never thinking about them at all. That's their trouble. That's what the apostle here says about them. This mind of the flesh shuts them out of the life of God and all the interests that emanate from the life of God. So the trouble with the unbeliever, the non-Christian, is that he's in a living death. He's merely existing. He's shut out from the life of God. And if he dies like that, he will go on to all eternity, shut out from the life of God. And there's nothing more terrible than that. But that is the meaning of spiritual death. And then he goes on to say another thing about these people. And this is verse 7. He says, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. Well, now, here again, it's unfortunate that we've got this translation, the carnal mind, because it's still, in the original, is the mind of the flesh. Because the mind of the flesh is enmity against God. And uh, that is why, do you see, the mind of the flesh is death. If a man is at enmity against God, he's obviously outside the life of God. And that means that he's dead. Here he's giving us the explanation of the statement that the mind of the flesh is death. It is death because it is enmity against God. Now, here you see we have one of our striking proofs that the apostle here is not comparing and contrasting two types of Christians but is comparing and contrasting the non-Christian and the Christian. You cannot say of any man who is a Christian that he is at enmity against God. It's impossible. A man cannot be at enmity against God and a Christian at the same time. Why is he a Christian at all? Well, because he wants to be right with God. Why does he believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Because he believes the Lord Jesus Christ puts him right with God. Why did he ever want that? Well, because he sees the consequences of being an enemy of God. So, here is a man who is at enmity against God. So, forget all about your so-called carnal Christian. This is not carnal Christian. There is no such thing. This is the non-Christian. This is a man who is not a Christian at all. This is the man he's been describing all along. He is contrasting the non-Christian with any or every Christian. Now the carnal mind, this non-Christian then, is one who is at enmity against God. The apostle says this in many other places. In Colossians 1.21 you will read... You, he says, that were sometime, once upon a time, alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. Exactly the same thing. They were that, they're no longer that. Why are they no longer that? Well, because they're Christians. In other words, the contrast is between the non-Christian and the Christian. But let me emphasize once more that this is true of every person who is not a Christian. Ah, but you say, wait a minute now, I know certain people who say, I wouldn't like to say that I'm a Christian, but I believe in God. What about them? Well, the simple truth about them is this, that they are at enmity against God. But But they're interested in God. They believe in God. They read books about God, and they talk about God, and they argue about God. No, they don't. Well, how can you say that so dogmatically, says someone? I say it for this reason. They think they're interested in God, but their interest is not in God. It's in some figment of their own imagination. It is in some product produced by their own philosophy and their own thoughts. But why do you say even that, says someone? Well, I think I can prove it to you. And the way you can prove it to any such person whom you may happen to know is quite simple, you do it like this. You say, do you believe in God? Of course I believe in God, I've always believed in God. Very well then, you now confront them with the God of the Bible. You confront them with a God who is not only love, but also justice and righteousness. Confront them with a God who not only shows mercy and compassion, but who shows wrath and they'll snarl their teeth at you. They say they don't believe in such a God. Of course they don't. They never did believe in God. What they believe in is, you see, a God whom they've constructed for themselves. They've made a God of their own. They've got no authority whatsoever except that they think so. They say, now, the God, a God I believe in, the God I think that is God, is a God who is entirely a God of love. Wrath, of course, impossible. But where is their authority for that? They've got none at all. It is simply that they and people like them say that and agree in saying that. The only knowledge that we have of God is what we've got in this book. God has revealed himself. No man can know God. No man can see God or has seen God at any time. If a man could understand God and know all about him with his own mind, he'd be equal to God, if not bigger. By definition, God is absolute and infinite and eternal in all his attributes and qualities. We cannot arrive at him. He must reveal himself. He has done so. And he's done so in this book and in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ taught us about the wrath of God and about the judgment of God and about hell Yes, but the moment these people who say they believe in God hear that, they're furious, they deny it, they remonstrate against it, they hate it. Of course, they hate God, as Paul tells us. This mind of the flesh is enmity against God. It wants a God after its own image, and because it can't get it, it hates the God of the Bible, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God preached by this apostle Paul and all the other apostles. And you'll find a great deal of that today. Alas, you find it in so-called Christian pulpits and churches. Men in the name of God and of Christ, showing their enmity and their hatred of the God, the living God, the only true and living God. Let us not ever be misled or deluded by people saying that they believe in God. The question is, do they believe in God who has revealed himself, who is the only God? All natural men, all who are not Christians, are at enmity against God. The next thing he tells us about them, the fifth thing is this, that they're not subject to the law of God. What he means is they don't subject themselves. How can they? If they hate him, why should they subject themselves to him? They do hate him and they do not subject themselves to him. Instead, as he says of submitting themselves as a soldier does to his commanding officer or to his general, which is the meaning of the term subject, instead of that. They rebel. They're antagonistic. They don't care what God has said. They do what they want to do. They're not taking orders. They're following out their own minds and their own likes and dislikes, and their own understanding. So man by nature is an enemy of God. He's a rebel against God. He flouts the commandments of God. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have all gone after our own devices. That's true of all men who are not Christians. They're doing it tonight. They're trampling and spitting upon the Ten Commandments and the moral law and all the sanctities. Of course they are. They're haters of God, and they hate his law. They abominate it. They are not subject to the law of God. But let me hurry to this last point. Neither indeed can be, says the apostle. Did you notice it? This mind, he says, is not subject to the law of God. Neither indeed can be. What does this mean? This is a very vital statement about the unbeliever. The unbeliever, says Paul, is not only like that, he can't do anything about it. is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Of course, you've got exactly the same idea in that 1 Corinthians 2.14 that I read to you just now. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he. He can't. Why? Well, because they're spiritually discerned. You see, a man who's turned deaf to music cannot create... Delight in music in himself. He may want to want to, but he cannot. It's it's impossible. But here, what the apostle is telling us is this. That this natural man, this non-Christian, not only does he hate God and not subject himself to the law of God, he not only hates God, he cannot desire to love God. He cannot desire to obey him. He cannot choose to do so. He is totally incapable of any spiritual effort. Now, I'm not saying this, but the Apostle Paul is saying it. So you see this teaching that you hear sometimes today, that you preach the gospel to the natural man as he is, and he as he is decides to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and then because he's believed, he's given new life, he's regenerated. He believes, and because of his belief, he's regenerated. It's a complete denial of what the apostle is teaching. The natural man, this man after the flesh, this unbeliever, he cannot believe in God. He cannot believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's at enmity. He hates him. He's altogether opposed to him. He's shut out from his life. He lacks a spiritual faculty. He's incapable. Neither indeed can be. He is completely helpless. He cannot choose to love God. You can't love God and hate him at the same time. Why should a man who is at enmity and a hater of God decide suddenly to love him? There is no reason. His whole nature is against it. His whole bias, his whole bent, everything in him is opposed to God. And there he is, in complete and entire helplessness. He is dead. And there is nothing more final than death. No, the man who is spiritually dead hates God, rebels against him, and can do no other, because he is like that. Natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for their foolishness to him neither can he. These things are spiritually deserved. And if you haven't got the spiritual faculty, you cannot discern them. If that is absent and lacking in you, and you're completely dead, how can you? You can't, and of course, and the world is proving that they cannot. And what is the result of all this? It's in the eighth verse. So then, here's the conclusion the thing he was really setting out to prove. So then, they that are in the flesh, they're the same people, they are after the flesh, they are governed by the mind of the flesh, and they are in the flesh. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. They are displeasing in his sight. His displeasure is upon them. They can do nothing at all about pleasing him. They cannot bring forth any fruits unto God, as he puts it in chapter 7 in verse 4. The righteous demands of the law cannot be fulfilled in them. In the flesh, after the flesh, governed by the mind of the flesh. They are entirely and all together outside God and his life. And there is nothing in them or about them that recommends them to God. That's the unbeliever. How does any man become a believer then? The answer is this. It's been already given in verse 2. And God willing, we shall go on to work it out next Friday. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath set me free. I haven't done it. It's been done to me. It is God's action. By grace are received through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. We are his workmanship. We can do nothing It is all of God. And let us thank God that it is. Because it is because it is all of God that it is certain. That it is safe. That it is sure. We are not just believers. We've been made anew. We are in the realm of the spiritual. We've been put there. We are in Christ. The Spirit of God has incorporated us into him. It is his action. Well, there we've been looking tonight at the negative and how important it is that we should do so. We'll never realize what we are as Christians until we first realize what we were as non-Christians and what was absolutely essential before we could ever become Christians. If God had not quickened us, we would still be dead. A dead man can't give himself life. God quickened us. And because God put life into us, we are alive in Christ Jesus and in the realm of the Spirit. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, we do turn unto thee to thank thee and to praise thy name. Seeing, O Lord, once more what we were by nature, all of us, And what we would still be were it not for thine amazing love and grace. And what thou hast done thyself in thine only Son, whom thou didst send into the world in the likeness of sinful flesh and as a sin offering, that thou mightest condemn sin in the flesh. O God, love so amazing, so divine, is beyond our comprehension and baffles us. But we humbly thank thee and praise thy name for it and prostrate ourselves before thee and feel that it demands our soul, our life, our all. O God, receive the praise of our lips and by thy Spirit enable us to give and to offer unto thee the praise of our lives. We ask it in his blessed name. And now may the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit abide and continue with us now this night throughout the remainder of this hour short, uncertain earthly life and pilgrimage and until we shall be safely in glory. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust Audio Library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.